Welcome to the Skift Podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. Everyone is familiar by now with the low-cost carrier success stories. Ryanair, Southwest, EasyJet, Wizz Air, and others with similar models are among the most profitable in the industry. But low cost doesn't necessarily equal high profit. It's a tale of two types of flights, short haul, which is a moneymaker for budget airlines, and long haul, which has been a big loser. I'm your host, Hannah Sampson, and on today's episode of the Skift Podcast, we're talking about the next big challenge for low-cost airlines, how to make long-haul flights make money. This podcast is also our opportunity to showcase a new addition to the Skift family, the 14-year-old newsletter Airline Weekly. Seth Kaplan, the publication's editor, joins Skift senior aviation business editor Brian Summers to tackle the low-cost question. Our conversation first took the form of a Skift call last week. You'll hear several references to slides, which you can and should check out at skift.com slash airline hyphen slides. Here's the discussion. Seth got it started. Thanks so much for being here for the, the fifth Skift call, but it's my first call. We at Airline Weekly just became a part of the Skift team a few weeks ago. It's very exciting for me. What about you? Have you uh, have you done one of these calls before and you liked what you heard so you came back or did this topic draw you in? Either way, we're going to do our best to uh, to make the most of our time here together today for what I think is a, a, a very relevant topic. In fact, quick story. We were talking a few weeks ago about what topic uh, to cover today. We had several good ideas and it was one Monday morning, we said, yeah, let's do this one. Oh, let's talk about low-cost airline challenges, especially long-haul low-cost challenges. And like four hours later, this news came out that Primera Air, yeah, low-cost airline that had gotten into the transatlantic flying business, uh, had gone out of business. That familiar screen that anybody who's ever uh, bought a ticket on an airline that failed knows uh, on the website that it's over. Obviously, awful news uh, for the traveling public, especially for their employees, their stakeholders, uh, shareholders, so many other people doing business with them. Uh, but confirmed for us that this topic was as, as relevant and as timely as ever. Uh, on the other hand, it's also sort of timeless. That's the point of it. You know, Primary Air was not a one-off. We've kind of seen this happen over the years, a long and, and spotty history of this business model. And uh, here to take us through that history is my new colleague, but uh, someone with a byline that you know well if you if you follow Skip. I'm talking about Skip Senior Aviation Business Writer, Brian Summers. Brian. Thanks, Seth. Uh, and good morning from Los Angeles to all of you. Uh, before I get started, I just want to say how excited I am to have uh, Seth and the Airline Weekly team uh, with us. It's, uh, it's, it's really great to have them. And you'll see in this presentation that we have access to some data that I never had before. So very exciting. That's one thing. Uh, another thing is uh, you probably heard Seth emphasize long haul when he mentioned this troubled business model. Of course, you're on this call, so you know that long haul, the emphasis was for good reason. Uh, low cost short haul is still an excellent model. It's probably one of the best. Um, 
But you all probably know that the most profitable airlines tend to fly shorter routes, often, although perhaps not always, stage lengths of five hours or, or fewer. So uh, we look at these airlines, and of course, this is only a small sample. Southwest has been profitable for nearly half a century. Uh, Ryanair is among the largest airlines in Europe by passengers carried, not quite the largest anymore. Um, and then uh, we look in the center of this page, and uh, you might notice an outlier. It's in the middle. It's uh, Canadian. You see the maple leaf there. That's WestJet Airlines. Uh, and they started flying in 1996. They were a Southwest Airlines clone. They had all 737s. It worked perfectly. Uh, 2012 came around. They got a little bit uh, greedy. They added turboprops. Uh, that also worked okay. Uh, and then more recently, they've gone with wide bodies, first the Boeing 767s, and um, they flew to Europe. Uh, and then early next year, they'll take their first Boeing 787 with flatbed business class seats. Uh, it's an interesting model. Someday it may pay dividends. Uh, but I think you all should know that uh, WestJet's streak of 51 consecutive profitable quarters, uh, it ended in February. So uh, as I said, a great thing about having Airline Weekly is that we have uh, some data to back things up right now. Um, so every year, uh, they rank the most, uh, the most profitable airlines. Uh, this is 74 airlines ranked top to bottom for 12 months. I think we have the top 20 here. Um, and what they do is they rank airlines by operating profit margin. And Seth tells me that that's really the best way to compare airlines of different sizes um, from different parts of the world. So you'll notice two things here. Uh, first, running a full-service airline group uh, or airline doesn't necessarily spell disaster. So we see uh, International Airlines Group, or what we call IAG. Um, they own British Airways, Iberia, and Aer Lingus, among some others. Uh, IAG is a complex global airline group, uh, and it has pretty moderate costs. They're not the highest, they're not the lowest, certainly, um, but their revenues are so strong that it's a profit-producing machine. Um, Delta and Japan Airlines are on this list. Uh, they're pretty similar. Don't know if you listened to the Delta earnings call yesterday, but they said that premium revenue has never been better. Of course, low-cost airlines don't necessarily have that. Um, but second, we can say, you know, my goodness, there are a lot of low-cost airlines on this list. Uh, and they're global. Um, they're Europe, they're Latin America, they're Asia, the Americas. We can see that the low-cost model, short haul especially, works just about everywhere. Uh, we even see that it's working in Brazil. So we look at uh, Goal, which is in the top tier of profitability, uh, despite what we know to be significant economic problems in its home country uh, of Brazil. Um, and there's another point that we should uh, mention here. It's on the right side of the slide. Um, you know, what do these low-cost airlines have in common, except, from Cebu, except for Cebu Pacific, um, which is a low-cost airline in the Philippines, these carriers uh, fly 100% narrow-body airplanes. Um, so a lot of folks in the airline business, as they grow, they get tempted to add those Dreamliners or those A330s. It's sexy to have an airline uh, with those aircraft. I think you all know that. Um, but those airplanes, uh, they add some complexity and they add costs, and the best low-cost carriers tend to avoid them. All right, so who isn't on that list of the top 20? Um, the biggest one that we can tell is Norwegian. Of course, Norwegian gets so much attention in the media for disrupting established airlines, and they do. Uh, the problem is that they're not really profitable. Um, Seth at Airline Weekly tells me that Norwegian is second from the bottom of the list, has a negative 8% operating margin, as, as you can see. Um, now, we know that Norwegian doesn't only fly long haul. It has a robust short haul network uh, within Europe, and it flies some domestic routes uh, within Norway. 
We also know that it doesn't break out its financial results by route. Um, no airline does. So we can't say with certainty what's dragging it down. Uh, but we're smart people. You guys are smart, smart people. Uh, we know that Norwegian was a pretty solid European short-haul airline before it started dreaming big. Uh, and we know that the more long-haul flying Norwegian ads, uh, interestingly enough, the more money it loses. So this negative uh, 8% margin, it's actually not far from the uh, margin that Air Berlin posted before it went bust. It was about negative 10%. Uh, and Air Berlin, you guys may remember, uh, was also a short-haul, low-cost airline that, that decided to get into long-haul. And guess what? It got into trouble. Uh, the good news is that unlike, Nor uh, unlike Air Berlin, Norwegian is solvent, and uh, it could even be a takeover for International Airlines Group or another big airline group, so they may have a big payday ahead of them. Um, but any crisis, maybe a fuel sp spike or a terrorist event, uh, could make the airline situation more precarious. Um, I'll note this is probably why you don't hear U.S. airlines complain much about Norwegian. You probably remember a few years ago, there was some noise about the airline's business model, and people were complaining that it had operating certificates in multiple, multiple European countries. Um, it was all legal, but that didn't stop some airlines from complaining. Uh, you just don't hear that much anymore, except for maybe from uh, labor groups. I, I just don't think that U.S. airlines are all that threatened. Uh, so we have another interesting slide here. Um, of course, Norwegian gets a lot of attention, uh, but we all know it wasn't the first airline to try low-cost, long-haul. Um, if you're older or you know uh, your airline history, you may remember um, Sir Freddie Laker. Uh, Laker Airways started as a short-haul airline in Europe, and it had some success. Um, and this was kind of remarkable because it was before airline deregulation. Um, but then the airline started flying from London uh, to New York in the uh, 1980s, and uh, within a few years, uh, Laker Airways was history. Um, although you may notice that Freddie Laker is actually on the tail of one of Norwegian's planes. Um, yes, uh, there was a fuel spike and recession in the late 1970s and 80s, but uh, you know what? Southwest Airlines came through it just fine. Uh, a little bit later, we see on this slide um, People Express um, in, in the United States. They were so low cost that they collected cash on board for the tickets. Um, but honestly, it was the same story. They started short haul. They did okay. They flew from New York to London and then not for long. Uh, in the 1990s, which is more uh, my era, I remember seeing these aircraft in New York. Uh, we had Tower Air um, and you know they weren't they weren't fancy, but but they were cheap. And guess what? Uh, they don't exist anymore. And then of course, more recently, we've seen uh, Air Berlin. Um, so we can see here just uh, you know this hasn't stopped other airlines from trying. Um, we've mentioned a few. Um, these airlines uh, started as as short haul, low cost airlines, and and then they got into long haul. Some are actually doing okay, um, but we're going to have to see if it's sustainable over the long haul. Uh, at the bottom there, you have legacy airlines with low-cost, long-haul units. Uh, to me, it's not clear whether these are uh, legitimate businesses or whether they're what a professor once told me were fighting brands. Um, so some of these airlines at the bottom exist to make money. Others, others of them probably just exist uh, to fend off challenges um, from, uh, from established low-cost carriers. Um, so we see uh, IAG's level here. Uh, I suppose it's possible level could live on forever. Um, but I'll remind all of you that about a decade ago, British Airways was having some trouble competing against uh, all business class airlines. Uh, so uh, about, a, about in 2008, uh, they bought one, La Avion, and uh, for a decade, they ran it as open skies. 
But we all know that we're not talking about all business class airlines right now. They're not really a threat. And guess what? Uh, Open skies went away this summer. So I'm going to imagine that if it's a decade from now and there's a lot less, uh, you know, Norwegian doesn't exist, uh, level could disappear too. Uh, there are a couple interesting airlines here. Um, we tend to hear good things about uh, Jetstar and Rouge uh, just on their own. Uh, so it's possible that they could they could keep flying. All right. So who may try this model next as far as established airlines? Um, you know, there are there are a few airlines that are planning it. Uh, Japan Airlines is almost certain to start a low cost long haul subsidiary uh, probably by 2020 in time for the Summer Olympics. Uh, and then we have the other two here. Um, they're both Indian Airlines, uh, short-haul, low-cost airlines. Their domestic marketplace is pretty brutal right now, uh, and they both seem to think they might find salvation in, in long-haul markets. But you know what? Uh, we will see whether it works for them. All right. So these are these are the big U.S. airlines, right? Um, are they going to fly low-cost, long-haul? Uh, you don't want to make predictions on this call uh, because then people someday will remind you of them. Uh, but I'm pretty much willing to predict that uh, America's largest uh, airlines are not going to attempt uh, low-cost, long-haul offshoots. Um, three of them, uh, U.S. Airways, Delta, and United, attempted uh, low-cost, short-haul operations a couple of decades ago. At the time, the threat wasn't Norwegian. The threat was in the United States. It was low-cost carriers like Southwest and JetBlue. Um, but the big airlines realized it didn't make sense. Uh, as a lot of you know, they couldn't really lower their costs, even with these offshoots, enough to compete. Uh, so they have this uh, newish idea right now. They'd rather just discount some seats and essentially in the back of the aircraft to compete with low-cost carriers. And uh, this is why they, they compete. They, they added basic economy, and it's why they use it uh, on long-haul flights now, at least to Europe. All right, so there's another airline um, in the United States that's not on this list. Um, it's JetBlue. I consider it a relatively major airline, even though it's a lot smaller than the others, uh, but it's been around for a couple decades. Uh, a lot of you know JetBlue has hinted for a long time now. It wants to fly to Europe. Uh, as I said, it's true that JetBlue has lower costs than the biggest airlines, but it's not necessarily a low-cost airline like people would have considered back in the day. Uh, and frankly, it may not even fly to Europe um, as bullish as they've been uh, during the airline's investor day a couple weeks ago, executives said that they had uh, more pressing priorities than flying to Europe. Uh, I think they know it's a safer move to uh, expand uh, with short haul in the United States. All right, so I've just explained the what. Um, Seth, can you take us through why this model doesn't work uh, often? Absolutely. Great job, Brian. Thanks so much for that. And I'd like to remind uh, those of you who are listening live with us, uh, that if you see that chat button on your screen, if you have any questions, go ahead and click that. We're going to save some time at the end uh, to answer a few questions. So, uh, so feel free to to ask away. Uh, Brian, you mentioned Norwegian. You know how flashy they are, uh, and you and I, of course, cover the industry, pay close attention to it. And airline weekly, we, we we get calls a lot from from journalists working on stories about airlines. Some of them do follow the industry closely. Uh, but sometimes we get these calls from people who, who cover other things. I mean, you know, really good journalists uh, who just don't pay a lot of attention to the industry. And I'll get a call from somebody in a city where Norwegian is about to start flights. And they'll say, yeah, we want to do a story about Norwegian and, and all of their success. And uh, because they see all the shiny new airplanes flying around the world. And I'll, 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 I'll sort of have to throw a little water on that and say, okay, well, we've talked about Norwegian, but just so you know, uh, they're actually one of the least profitable airlines in the world. And a lot of people are surprised. Uh, to realize that, so 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 the question is, you know, why is that? You know, why is low cost so successful for short haul, 
and uh, yet it has so much trouble with long haul. I think it makes sense first to look back to uh, you know, the, the, the first uh, successful low-cost uh, airline and, and one with an enduring model. I'm talking, of course, about Southwest. And Southwest is a great one to talk about because uh, it, it, you know, even people who don't know all that much about the airline industry, anybody who's ever taken a business course, uh, it probably had a page, a case study about Southwest Airlines and how they did it, the simplicity and the efficiency and all the rest of it. And, you know, one story among many, there was that legend about how uh, they were uh, starting up with four airplanes, uh, but they were running out of money as they were launching, and they ended up having to get rid of one of the four airplanes. But everybody got together and said, you know what, we're going to fly the schedule that we plan to fly with four airplanes, but we're going to do it with just three airplanes. And what they did was establish the the, the high utilization model, the quick aircraft turnaround uh, times. You know, the airplane sh- gets to the gate, and back then people would get off, and, and the new passengers would get on. It would take ten minutes, and they would get that airplane back off the gate and and into the air uh, using alternative airports. You know, my, Fort Lauderdale, let's say instead of Miami, Oakland in the old days instead of San Francisco. As some of that has evolved over the years. They they don't turn a plane around in ten minutes anymore, but they still do it more quickly in the competition. Uh, yeah, they fly to San Francisco now, uh, in addition to Oakland, but they don't fly to Miami. They don't fly to Chicago O'Hare. They don't fly to Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, they still, more than the legacy competitors, tend to favor the airports with the uh, with lower airport costs. Uh, now, look, Southwest also charged less than the competition, uh, but you know, guess what? If your costs are a whole lot lower than the competition, and if your price is only somewhat lower than the competition not just in the airline industry, in any industry, you're probably going to be really profitable. If your costs are 40% lower and your prices are just 20% lower, that's a pretty good place to be in any industry. And it's uh, what has worked well for Southwest and others around the world, Ryanair, AirAsia, and all the rest of them that Brian mentioned all these years. Um, And here's the thing about those advantages. They are massive when it comes to short-haul flying, because you get to multiply those advantages by a lot more flights. So when a Southwest or a Ryanair plane is on the ground five, six, maybe seven times a day, that quicker aircraft turnaround time, you know, 10 or 15 minutes faster than, than, than a legacy competitor, that adds up to hours of additional flying during the day. Those lower airport costs, you know, cost 10 bucks less to, to, uh, to process the passenger, well, using the same, advantage, same examples, you know, Fort Lauderdale instead of Miami, that adds up to a whole lot when the airplane is landing and taking off uh, lots of times during the day. The airplane's only on the ground a couple times a day, they're just less important. There's still advantages, but they're a lot less important. They're not the primary cost drivers uh, when it comes to long haul flying. What are the primary cost drivers when it comes to long-haul flying? Uh, Well, they're fuel and aircraft costs, aircraft ownership costs. Overwhelmingly, those are the two most important costs. And guess what's different about those costs? When you talk about fuel or you talk about aircraft ownership, not a particular advantage for low-cost airlines, right? Everybody buys fuel. Everybody buys aircraft. I mean, some people might pay less for fuel than others because of, 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 of... 
certain financial moves, fuel hedges, maybe a certain airline gets a better deal on aircraft than another airline because of its credit history and other things. But they're, they're not advantages that are particular to one kind of business model. And there's a quote that I heard at, at, at an event in London early this decade that always stuck with me. It was from Ryanair's former CFO, Howard Miller. And uh, he was asked, uh, is Ryanair contemplating long-haul flying? And uh, he noted what I just said about fuel and aircraft ownership costs. Those are the two important costs. And he said, quote, unless you get very cheap fuel or very cheap aircraft, it's going to be hard to differentiate your costs from Lufthansa or Air France. And the implication is, of course, nobody's, because of the business model, likely to uh, get cheaper fuel or cheaper aircraft. So that was his way of saying that, yeah, short haul, you know, we, we, uh, we, we uh, beat those airlines every time. Long haul, uh, not as much so. So when it comes to costs on long haul, low cost carriers don't have the same kinds of advantages that they have in short haul markets where the cost drivers are those areas where, uh, where they're a lot more efficient than their competitors. What about revenue? Remember I said before, it's not just costs in a vacuum or revenue in a vacuum that matters. It's, it's the differential, right? Do you have really big cost advantages and only small revenue disadvantages in a low cost airline? If so, uh, you know, you're probably making money. If not, maybe not. Well, on the revenue side, it's the legacy airlines that have massive revenue advantages. Uh, their premium cabins, you know, the business class seats, the corporate travel contracts. They go around to big corporations selling giant, uh, you know, volume deals, doing giant volume deals with them uh, to fill those premium cabins. The lounges, the premium ground services, the loyalty programs that have been so important, uh, become so important. Uh, the robust connecting networks. I mean, yeah, Norwegian will, will, will sell you a connecting uh, uh, itinerary, but you know the legacy airlines are set up to to feed the long haul networks with uh, with very robust networks uh, of of short haul flights. And and you know another thing is that low cost carriers tend to depend on stimulating discretionary traffic. Uh, that's harder to do with long haul. So I'm talking about there are a lot of people in the world who if, if they see a really cheap flight to a destination two hours away, they'll take a trip they didn't even plan to take just because it's cheap. Uh, that's discretionary spending. Uh, once you get into flights, uh, six, eight, 10, 12 hours, not as many people in the world uh, who, are, uh, who are going to take that flight just because it's cheap, you know. So when you look at the new world's longest flight from you know from Newark to Singapore, 18, 19 hours, not a lot of people are going to be taking that flight uh, on an ongoing basis, uh, you know, ju just because of price. You know, those are people who who probably have another reason to go uh, where they're going. And um, I, I should say, uh, in terms of controlling cost, unit cost, the cost of carrying each seat, each mile in long haul markets. Uh, actually, it was at that same event where I, I mentioned that quote from, from Howard Miller, from you know, formerly of Ryanair, where he talked about uh, how they couldn't get a big advantage. Um, I, I was moderating a panel, and on it was the uh, former CFO, or former CEO, rather, of AirAsia X, the, the, the low cost offshoot of a very successful AirAsia group. Uh, and I posed that to him. I said, what about what Howard Miller said, you know, that unless you have cheap fuel or cheap aircraft, you're not going to have an advantage. He said, oh, he said, but, but, he said, we put far more seats on the airplane. You know, C 
seating density. We pack seats onto the airplane and that does drive down our unit cost. And look, he's absolutely right. You know, when you put more seats onto the plane, that is the surest way uh, out there of driving down your unit cost because you get to take the cost of the airplane, the cost of the pilots, of, of a lot of other things, and just divide them among more seats. And so that's going to drive down the cost of carrying each seat each mile. But here's the thing about that. Is that an advantage for low-cost airlines, a structural advantage for low-cost airlines? The reality is it's not, because any airline can add seats to planes. And in fact, any airline has. Air Canada is my favorite example. Uh, a few years back, they took uh, their, their one variant of their 777s, the 777-300ER, and they managed to add 109 seats to the plane. They went from 349 seats to 458 seats by taking off a few business class seats, adding a premium economy section, going from nine seats across in regular economy to 10 seats across, you know, taking, off a, taking away a little bit of elbow room. And, uh, and yeah, so they did it too. So sure, low cost long haul airlines tend to put a lot of seats on the plane, but it's, it's not a, a structural advantage for them. It's something that their legacy competitors can do just as easily uh, if they choose to do so. And, uh, you know, go back to Norwegian because they kind of are right now the, the poster child in terms of an airline that people around the world, you know, recognize as this flashy, low-cost, long-haul airline. By the way, one that's, that's you know, done great things for the travel industry. Uh, I mean, I, I remember I flew them a few years ago from Oslo to Fort Lauderdale. Instead, being in the boarding area there in Oslo, I remember talking to this young couple who had just come in from Warsaw, connecting there, and they were going to the United States just because now they could, be, because it had become affordable, and so much of that around the world. A wonderful thing that these airlines uh, are, are doing uh, for the world in terms of bringing people closer together. The question is, can, can they sustain themselves? And here you see, and look at that if you're, if you're with us live, look at that date. This was in an Airline Weekly interview back in 2012, as Norwegian was just getting into this. Uh, we asked the CEO uh, of, of, of Norwegian, uh, you know, we said, hey, this is an unproven business model, low-cost, long-haul. Why is it going to work this time when it failed so many times over the years, as Brian told us, everybody from Freddie Laker to Air Berlin? Uh and, and he said to us, he said, ah, he said, but they didn't have the Dreamliner. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the game changer, as he, as he called it. And indeed, I mean, there's no question that the, that the Dreamliner is, is you know, many orders more, more uh, efficient than the 747s and other aircraft that did it over the years. But here, too, is that an advantage? You know, if Norwegian had the Dreamliner and, and British Airways, um, you know, was flying 707s, um, then, then sure, that, that would be a, a huge advantage. The problem is that anybody can buy a Dreamliner. And in fact, again, when you get into long haul, you're talking about very expensive aircraft. You're talking about aircraft that can cost three or four times what a narrow body aircraft, what a 737 or, or an Airbus 320 cost, even though they don't carry three or four times uh, the number of passengers in most cases. So it puts a lot of pressure on the airline uh, to, to, uh, to, to find the revenue uh, to compensate for those costs. So the bottom line here, I've kind of said this several different ways, but in short haul markets, the low cost airlines have massive cost advantages 
because of the airport costs, because of the quick turns, because of so many other things that they do, and only modest revenue disadvantages. And that's a recipe for profits. In long-haul markets, uh, low-cost airlines have modest cost advantages. I mean, to be clear, Norwegian does cost them less to carry each seat, each mile across the Atlantic than it costs you know, Air France or somebody like that. Uh, but they have massive rev- revenue disadvantages. You know, the, the, the fares uh, are, are very different. The costs aren't so different. And, uh, you know, in any business, uh, you know, if your costs are just a little lower than those of your competition, but you're charging a lot less than your competition, you're going to be less profitable uh, than your competition. And by the way, Brian mentioned this earlier. I think it's worth noting there, there are always exceptions. Even if the exception proves the rule, you got to note the exceptions. And uh, these are two that when we look at them, although, as Brian also mentioned, airlines don't generally break out the the profits and losses of of, of different uh, parts of their networks. And and these two are ones where these airlines do not break these out. Uh, But Air Canada, Rouge, and Jetstar is long-haul flying. Now, we know Jetstar overall. Qantas does give numbers for Jetstar overall, including short-haul. We know Jetstar overall is very successful. This is one where there are enough data points to suggest that, yeah, their long-haul flying too probably does well. Air Canada Rouge seems to be doing well. Air Canada has has, has seen its, its relative results improve against WestJet as it has rolled this out. It continues expanding, continues doing well. And, uh, you know, one difference here, these are probably two units that are doing things that those airlines, those parent airlines would do anyway, the kinds of flying they would do anyway, just doing it with lower costs, you know, not getting into adventures that probably nobody would uh, would think to do uh, in the first place. And just one note there you see on your screen, we're talking here about when we say low cost, long haul airlines, we're talking about companies that are overwhelmingly airlines. We're not talking about integrated tour operators which also very often don't break out the airline performance where uh, a company like Transat in Canada, where the company might make money even if the airline's not making money because it makes so much of its revenue comes from other kinds of travel activities. Uh, So we have a few minutes. Uh, Here comes that voice again uh, that we heard at the beginning of the call. Andrew Shabakman, senior editor here at Skipped. Andrew, do we have any questions? We do have questions, but... In fact, you can see them and scroll through since you guys are the experts. Um, why don't you pick which ones are most uh, pertinent to the discussion? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Bonnie says, big airline groups seem to be adopting the same strategy as hotel chains, different brands for different segments. Uh, true. Um, you know, what I would say is that What's unproven is whether it's, it's, it's worth the investment in those brands. And I think especially when you get into low cost, uh, you know, into, into airline units that are designed for price sensitive tra- uh, tra- travelers, there's sort of this paradox. You know, when you see Singapore Airlines go out and, and, and start Scoop, you know, the idea is that, hey, we're going to create an airline for people who care about cheap airline tickets above all else. But then they invest a lot of money in that brand you know, in Scoop, um, it it sort of defeats the purpose somewhat. Uh, You know, Brian mentioned earlier level uh, as one that I think some of us in the industry sort of look at and say, well, you know, maybe it's not driving the profitability of IAG, but 
at least they haven't. I mean, when you look at that brand, it's almost as if they go out of their way to sort of not spend too much money on it. Uh, and, and so, yeah, uh, the more you get into the part of this business that's a commodity where it's just airline uh, tickets, you know, cheap, cheap airline tickets, uh, the more it, it sort of becomes difficult to make money by investing a lot of money uh, in, in a brand. Air France has one called June, which is sort of this low-ish cost long haul uh, that a lot of people are still trying to figure out what exactly um, they're doing with it. But there's one where they've clearly invested a lot in creating this brand that feels kind of young and, and, and all that. Um, but, you know, are you going to find the, uh, the revenue uh, to, uh, to make up for it? Uh, Seth, it's uh, Brian here. Um, it's an interesting question here about uh, segmentation. I just wanted to chime in because I mainly cover um, U.S. airlines. And of course, they don't want to create these different brands for different segments. Uh, what they're doing is actually segmenting the airplane itself, uh, which is weird because you have all these people who are paying uh, different prices um, in the same cabin. Um, but they get to they get to segmentation by saying, "Look, we have flatbed business class seats. Uh, now we have premium economy, uh, which is a, a new uh, class." And a lot of people thought when airlines added premium economy, they'd get rid of these extra legroom seats. But they generally haven't. So behind premium economy now. Uh, we have Economy Plus for United or Main Cabin Extra for American. And that's just a regular coach seat with a few extra inches of legroom. And then you have regular economy behind that. And then, frankly, in the back of the aircraft, you have what you've always had. You have some seats that are really just horrible. Uh, some of them uh, don't recline at all. Uh, some of them might be a little bit more uh, narrow as you get to the very back of the plane. Um, and maybe they sell those seats uh, for even cheaper. So a lot of these airlines that that don't have uh, different brands, they're still segmenting their customers, slicing and dicing them as much as they uh, possibly can. And, and Brian, these airlines have long memories. They remember starting Song and TED and before that Shuttle by United and Metrojet and Continental Light. Not, and look, it happened over in Europe too, all the low cost offshoots. Uh, so we're talking here, including short haul offshoots. Uh, but you know, Snowflake and Buzz and Go and on and on. And, and it just rarely worked. Uh, and so, so yeah, uh, the, 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 in the US anyway, the trend's very much same brand, uh, but, uh, but segmentation, um, that's, a, uh, that's, that's a great point. Seth, can we take this question about uh, low cost in, in Asia? Uh, we have a guest here that says, I think it's obvious that low cost long haul will first flourish in Asia where there's constantly emerging middle class. Uh, you could argue that it already exists as many sectors are essentially long haul. Uh, transatlantic never going to happen with any stamina. Um, I think the guest is is right here. Uh, one interesting thing is that uh, the stage lengths in Asia uh, just within Asia are longer. They're longer than the five hours that I mentioned. Uh, we would call them in the United States and Europe probably long haul. You don't necessarily hear them uh, describe it as long haul. You'll almost hear uh, maybe uh, Japan to Southeast Asia described as uh, medium haul. Um, and I do think that we will see more carriers, especially um, like AirAsia X, expanding um, 
with these six, seven hour uh, stage lengths. You've seen it with Jetstar as well. Uh, I do think that this person is right, uh, that true long haul from Asia is much tougher. We've seen AirAsia X expand to London. They got rid of that flight pretty quickly. Uh, Tony Fernandez keeps talking about how it's coming back someday. Uh, maybe it is, but uh, I'm going to guess it's not going to be a, a, a great performer, but perhaps they'll, they'll prove me wrong. What do you think, Seth? Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, as you said, there's mid-haul markets. Once you get onto the radar, of, you know, once you're flying to London and, and you're up against all of those things that we talked about, just those, those, those monster legacy airline advantages, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a different story. But, and yeah, sure enough, look, I mean, one, one of the few that we can say is, you know, probably doing pretty well is Jetstar, which is doing some of those kinds of, uh, you know, the, the Southeast Asia to Australia itineraries and, and other Jetstar units, joint ventures within uh, that part of the world. Which, which taken together seem to be doing uh, pretty well. So that, um, that, that, that data also um, suggests that it's, uh, that it's, uh, that what you said is true. Um, are we uh, on the last slide here? I'm getting, I'm getting a signal here that we have time for, for one more. Brian, can you see one? Because I just lost my, uh, my chat. Can you? Um, I know that we said that we weren't going to talk about these uh, tour companies. Uh, but there is a question here that, that's kind of interesting, and we 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 didn't touch on, so maybe we can. Um, traditional charter carriers in Europe have been successfully flying long haul for a long time. Two uh, E, Thomas Cook, etc. What's the difference between uh, what they do and what these new carriers do um, that's going to sink them? Yeah, and I think, and that's that's what, I, and the person probably typed that question before that that last slide there, where I said no, that that's true. Um, the difference there is that in a lot of cases, you have a lot of cross subsidies. Some of them do uh, have, have modestly profitable airlines, but in a lot of cases, uh, these are companies where the airline partly serves to uh, you know, fill hotel rooms and those sorts of things. So here we're talking about airlines where, it's, where they're pretty much an airline. You know, they have to make money uh, uh, with the airline. It, it is true that there are our airlines with or their travel companies with decades long history of, of, uh, of being sustainable with, uh, with airlines as, as part of the companies. Um, well, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. Uh, the, you know, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as, uh, as much as we have. Uh, and also I thought, you know, that, that if you like this kind of discussion, uh, we, we'd invite you to sign up for a, a free trial of airline weekly, the, the newsletter, uh, this, this is what we do. You know, we, 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 we analyze these things. We talk about them. Uh, it's a newsletter that we, it's really written on, on lots of different levels. We have airline CEOs who love what we do. And we have people in junior levels of management who use it as a tool to, to, to get themselves up to speed on the, uh, on the industry. So uh, hop online. It's airlineweekly.com and, and, and sign up for a free trial. And uh, again, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you, everyone. It's Brian here in LA. I've had a great time. If you enjoy conversations like this one, consider attending one of our live events. The next one is Gift Forum Europe in London on April 30th, 2019. Find out more about this and other events at forum.skift.com. This show was produced by Ben Glowey, who can be found on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Assistant editor Sarah Enlow provided additional support. To subscribe to this podcast, search for Skift on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. 
If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a comment to help other listeners find us. Past episodes and a link to subscribe are online at podcast.skift.com. And this has been The Skift Podcast. Thanks for listening.